take um, your Bible and find Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. We have uh, made our way through the entire Gospel of Matthew. We're at verse 16. There's an old saying that when you uh, begin your philosophy class, you uh, ask this, what is the most important part of an ox cart? And everybody's like, what ox cart? What? Well, you know, is it, what is it? Is it the uh, axle? Uh, uh, the ox? Is it the cart? What's the most important part of an ox cart? And the most important part is the blueprint. You see, when you have the blueprint, then you actually have the design that the creator intended. As soon as you lose the blueprint, you are terminal when it comes to ox carts. Now, let me just tell you, there is a blueprint that Christ has specifically given the church. What is it? What is it that we are supposed to be doing? What's the work that we're supposed to be about? And that answer has to be crystal clear in the mind of every believer. And if it is not, let me just tell you what's, what happens. We got a lot of motion without a whole lot of meaning. And this might actually be the caricature of the modern day church. We actually reinvent meanings. We've kind of redefined a purpose and we just kind of like make up whatever blueprint you want. And we do it all in the name of Jesus. And yet Jesus specifically has given us his blueprint. And as we've come to the gospel, through this gospel of Matthew, when you come to the final verses, it is actually the highlight and the most important text. You might say that is the most important text of the Gospel of Matthew, of the New Testament, of the Bible itself. Because from it, from the resurrection of Jesus, it's like his body is a seed and it dies and it's buried in the ground, but then it bursts forth with light, life and springs forth like a vine that is bearing fruit. It is all based on this commission. In fact, you are familiar with it. You've heard of it. It's called the Great Commission. And yet throughout church history, including in its present time, every single tenet of the mission has been violated. And so what is God's blueprint? What are we supposed to be doing? Well, let me just spell it out in some very simple terms. Christ's disciple-making mission, if we're going to recover it, we have to understand it's three facets. It's got a three-pronged approach. First, it is establishing people's identity in Christ. That is what we're to do. We are to establish people's identity in Christ. Then we are to be developing people's maturity in Christ. They not only know Christ and identify with him, but they are actually growing to a place of maturity. And the third tenet as we are to be going global with the mission of Christ. Now, the theme of the Gospel of Matthew is simply this, how to know Christ the King as the Lord of your life. And you make your way, and Matthew has been bringing this point time and time again, that Jesus is Lord. And if he's Lord, that means that we do as he says. So let me give you the setting in which Jesus actually gives us the blueprint that the church is supposed to be following. You pick it up in, in Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16. And it says, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus has designated. And you'll recall that just prior to this, Jesus, having been buried, rose from the grave on the third day. He started making appearances. 
Now, Matthew, unlike John, doesn't record all the appearances that Jesus makes. We did see from last week that Jesus actually makes an appearance uh, to, the, to Mary and saying, listen, I want you to tell my disciples to meet me in Galilee. That's what he said. Jesus, even uh, at the Passover, when he's celebrating that last Passover, saying, I want you to meet me in Galilee. And so that's what Matthew is highlighting. Now, there's some other appearances. Jesus actually appeared to the ten disciples. Now, when he refers to the eleven, the twelfth one, Judas Iscariot, had committed suicide, as Matthew records, and he is no longer part of the picture. You got ten uh, the first time Jesus appears to his men because Thomas is missing. Eight days later, remember he's called Doubting Thomas? I'm not going to believe until what? I stick my finger into his hands and my hand into his side, okay? I am not that gullible. Well, eight days later, Jesus appears and Thomas simply falls on his knees and says, my Lord and my God. Well, this event that he talks about going to Galilee is highly significant. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, it says that Jesus made an appearance to more than 500 other brethren. It is very likely that it happens right here in Galilee. So the 11 disciples are making their way to Galilee. That's what Jesus said, so that is what they're doing And notice in verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him. They had seen Jesus before. Remember these different accounts here in the upper room? But now they see him in Galilee. This is where Jesus began his ministry. This is where most of the followers of Jesus would be in Galilee. In Jerusalem, that's where most of his enemies have collected. In fact, they had actually killed him just a few days prior to this. But he goes, he appears to them, they see him, and they worship him. But notice what the text says, but some were doubtful. Now, it's highly unlikely that it would be the disciples, the original apostles, that they were the ones who were doubting, because after all, he had appeared to them several times before, and the one that was in their midst that was doubting, Thomas, he had undeniable proof. He falls falls on the ground, he says, my Lord, my God. So who were those who were doubting? It is likely some of these brethren. Now, this word doubt could also be translated hesitate. And Matthew just once again shows the veracity of Scripture, its authenticity, because he records it just the way it is. He's not like, I don't want to mention something like this. Do not get the idea that Jesus' initial followers were just really gullible. I'm like, he rose from the grave? You want to move that? Really? Okay. You mean there was a guy who died, he rose? Okay, I'll just believe that because they just weren't that way. They hesitated. You mean a man was crucified, buried, three days, he rises from the grave? I have got to see this. And so Matthew records that. Because there are many Jews, and Matthew is primarily writing to an initial Jewish audience, who have to come to terms with the reality that there is a mortal man, an immortal man, who has received mortal wounds and is alive. It is God the Son. And so he records that. He records that they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. But when, when all doubt is removed, they see him, his nailed, scarred hands, his pierced feet, that wound in his side, it is healed over and yet it's visible because even today there is a God-man in heaven whose wounds are still very visible. When all doubt is removed, verse 18, Jesus says, I want you to listen to me. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, 
All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I am the absolute supreme universal authority. By the virtue of the fact that he has risen from the grave, he appears. He says, I am it. I am the promised Messiah. I am the king of the universe. I have complete authority. And he presents, I want you to do something. Now, this is where the Great Commission comes in. But let me tell you something. Prior to Jesus ever telling his people what to do, he calls them to worship him. He wants us to be absolutely filled with wonder and amazement as to who he is and what he's accomplished. Christ's mission flows out of worship. It can never be divorced from worshiping of Christ. It's not like, well, we just got to follow some orders. Let me just tell you this. If you do not know who Jesus is, nor you will not follow what he says. But if you know who he is, risen son of God, resurrected one, the supreme ruler of the universe, the king of kings and lord of lords, then you will respond if you are a worshiping heart. And so he says, all authority has been given to me. I am it. I want you to do something. From worship, he says, I want you to go forth. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. You see that in verse 19? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He doesn't say, listen, this is your responsibility. I want you to get after it and do it. He says, no, I want you to look at me. I want you to focus on me. I want you to worship me from beginning and end. My mission is going to be accomplished through my people as you worship me and follow me. And then he says, I want you to go and make disciples. There is only one imperative, one command in verses 19 and 20. And that command is make disciples. There are three participles that actually kind of establish what does this look like. And the first one is found go. Your Bible, it should say going, or literal, it's an aorist participle. It should say, as you are going, it's assuming that you're going because he's sending you. So he says, as you're going, I want you to make disciples. Now, when you come to that word disciple, and we're going to take several weeks to focus and talk about what this great commission, the mission of Jesus is. But another word for disciple would be apprentice. A disciple is not necessarily just a convert. A disciple isn't someone that's in a church somewhere. A disciple is a learner, an apprentice. And just what, like you do with an apprentice. You, you went, you aligned yourself with the life of someone who actually knows a lot more than you do. You learn from them. You live with them. You come to the place where your skills can, or you've actually learned the skills to do what the, the master has taught you. And then you go forth from there. You go about the work and you do it in such a way that you can actually build into the lives of others. That's what it means to make a disciple. And it's not make disciples of yourself. It is to make disciples of Jesus. And so he says, I want you to go. I want you to make disciples of all the nations. Now, where is Jesus saying this? He's giving this great commission in, it's called Galilee of the Gentiles. Because there are lots of foreign people, lots of non-Jews that are there. And Jesus says, this is my mission. I'm sending you throughout the world. 
and I want you to make disciples of every single nation. And he says, I want you to do this. I want you to be about this work. It's kind of like this. It's like your life is a glove, and I'm going to put my hand into it, and I'm going to accomplish my work in you. And we're all like, oh, God could never do that. I mean, think about me. I'm thinking about my own life. Sinful, fearful. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to take your sin. I'm going to take your experiences. I'm going to take your education, where you've come from, and I am going to change you from the inside out, and I am going to accomplish my work. And this is what it's going to look like. You're going to be going, and you're going to make disciples of all the nation. And the second participle is I want you to be baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He literally, Jesus spells out the nature of God. He is one in essence, three in persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, we, we refer to it as the Trinity. Now, that word is not found in the Bible, but the re- revelation of who God is, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, is found in multiple places, especially here where Jesus says, in the name, notice it is singular name, and yet plural, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want you going, I want you baptizing, and then third, I want you to teach them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I want you to be bringing my people to maturity. So it gets started with understanding the reality of what it means to be in Christ. What does that mean to establish people's identity as those who are in Christ? Even when I say it, people are like, I don't, I've never heard things like this before. What, what does that mean, establishing my identity as in Christ? This is foundational to who we are as Christians. You see, in order to establish your identity, you have to know and daily live in this reality of who Jesus is, what he's accomplished, and who you are by virtue of your relationship with him. We never go past that. We know like, oh yeah, I heard about that and move on. We actually live out our identity because we are absolutely united with Christ. Who is he? He's the sovereign Lord. What has he done? Why, he entered into humanity, lived a perfect life. He became the perfect sacrifice, died, paid the penalty for our sins, was buried, rose on the third day. He has actually invested his spirit in the lives of all who believe. In fact, it is to such a degree that it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is who he is. That is what he's done. And that is who we are by virtue of our relationship with him. We are united with Christ. He never sees us in our sin. He always sees us in the Son. He has declared us righteous. And we believe and we take by faith that we are made right with God because we're in relationship with Christ. And so he says, I want you to live out in this identity. And a person's identity with Christ begins by believing in him and publicly identifying with him in baptism. And that's where it all starts. Jesus says, I want you to go make disciples of all the nations, and this is what you are to do. You don't reinvent it. You don't make it up. This is the blueprint. This is the one of what I called you to do. I'm the authority. I want you to be baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, what does this word baptize mean? Okay, there are two Greek words for baptize. There is bapto, okay? You're getting your Greek lesson for the day, all right? 
And there is baptizo. Bapto is used four times in the New Testament, and it was the word used to immerse. So, like, for instance, if you were going to dye some cloth, you would, it's bapto, okay? That white piece of cloth gets entered into that dye. That dye now uh, is now permeates that cloth. That cloth now is identified with that color, okay? Now, baptizo, the Greeks, what they did is, if you wanted to intensify something, you threw a few little letters at the end, okay? And you have baptizo, and it's used multiple times throughout the New Testament, and it's an intense form of, of actually submersion. In fact, the Latin translation is submersio or immersio. It literally means to immerse. In fact, the word baptizo is the same word, that's what they refer to as someone who is drowning, okay? They're literally completely dunked under. They are taking in water. They are submerged. And that's what it means. Every time you come across the word baptize in the New Testament, you could always substitute the word immerse. And had the translators actually translated it immerse, it probably would have saved a whole lot of confusion. But because baptism is so unique and so special, they transliterated it from baptizo, and so we have baptism. Okay? Now, let me also tell you... Uh, Baptism doesn't always necessarily refer to water baptism. It has the idea of identifying. You are submerged to the place where you actually take on the identity of that which you're submerged into. So, for instance, there is a spiritual baptism. In Romans chapter 6, it says that, Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ, have been baptized into his death? He's talking about the fact that we've been immersed into Christ. We identify with him. We identify with his death and his resurrection. Not talking about water baptism so much as spiritual baptism. And so uh, it does not mean sprinkle. And we can know that with certainty because there's actually a Greek word for for, uh, sprinkling. And it's rontizo. Okay, so for instance, in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 2, when it says that you are sprinkled with the blood of Christ, it has the idea that you were sprinkled, not necessarily submerged into it. And so there is a Greek word for sprinkle. It's rontizo, baptizo. Or bapto always means immerse. And so to give you a simple definition of baptism, it is this. It is a ceremony in which a person is immersed or submerged into water to identify that they are vitally united with the crucified and resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. And according to Jesus, this is the initial step. That you establish a person's identity so much with Jesus that they actually are baptized as a public expression of an internal reality. And so he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now let me, let me just give you a brief history. This is not meant to be exhaustive, but I want to give you a little brief history on baptism. Where did it originate? I mean, where does the whole idea of baptizing even come from? Okay? Dunking people in water, where did this come from? Actually, it has its origins in Judaism. Okay? Now, what happened is, Okay, God reveals himself to Israel, the one true faith from the one true God. And there are Gentiles, non-Jewish people, that God is drawing to himself and they want to worship the one true God and they want to do it in the right ways. They want to become and enter into the Jewish faith. Now, they had a process for that, okay? And it's called proselyte induction, okay? So if you were a non-Jewish person and you wanted to enter into the Jewish community, and to be able to worship the one true God and take part in all the events in the temple and stuff. So they had a process for that. And it had three steps, three parts. Circumcision, baptism, and animal sacrifice. Okay? So the first thing is there was this 
uh, circumcision. Okay, this is a rite performed on all males. Even if you're an adult and you say, I would like to enter into Judaism, you had to go through the rite of circumcision, the sign of the covenant. You entered in to uh, this, this part by actually partaking in that ritual, obviously, if you're a male. The second one was baptism. They literally would actually submerge you in water, and it represented a death, a death to your old way of self, your old idols, your old patterns in sin, and you're coming out, it represented a newness to life. And so you're going, you have a new life. And then the third, which was really interesting, is they had a sacrificial animal. They actually sent every one of these Gentile converts, and they actually gave them this visible symbol there has to be someone else that's going to pay for your sin. And it's just a prefiguring or a picture of the future, of a future perfect lamb that would die in place of their sins. But going back to baptism, it was this immersion in water for these Gentiles, dying to the old self, dying to the old ways of life, coming into the new. Now skip ahead, and you've got a guy by the name of John the Baptist who shows up. He's on the Jordan River. He's quite a sight to behold. He eats bugs dressed in uh, some gunny sacks, you know. And he is calling people to repentance. He says, prepare the way of the Lord. He is the Messiah's forerunner. And he's making all these proclamations. He's calling everybody to repent. And he's baptizing people in the Jordan River. And now Jewish people have seen these people being baptized. What is shocking is that he's, he's calling Jews to repent and be ready for the Messiah. And if you believe this message that I got to get ready, then you're baptized. Jewish people weren't getting baptized. They had purification baths, but you weren't baptized. And so that's what John does. He calls the nation to repentance. And whether you're a Jew or Gentile, if you identified with being ready for the, for the Lord, for Christ himself to come, you're turning from your sins, you were baptized, you identify with John's message. That's what baptism is. And then on a very special day for John, Jesus shows up. John's cousin. And Jesus requests baptism from John. John goes, wait a second, no way. I am to be baptized by you, not, not the way around. And Jesus says, permit it to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is baptized. And as he's, as he's finishing being baptized, even the father declares, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, wait a second, time out. Did Jesus have sin? Did he? No, he's perfect, right? Sinless. So what's he being baptized for? Because he's identifying with John's message of repentance and preparation for the way of the Lord. In fact, he is the fulfillment of that. And then at the end of Jesus' ministry, at his, after his resurrection, he tells, just like we see in this text, I want you to go and I want you to baptize who? Baptize these people and all the nations in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And submerging people baptism by immersion was the norm and it was for the first two centuries adult immersion that is the practice of the early church but then starting about the latter part of the second century there was a uh, kind of controversy that arose because there was infants now that were being baptized in certain locales and by the middle of the third century with the emergence of the roman catholic church 
that actually became somewhat the normative practice that you were baptizing babies. That wasn't universally practiced, but by the time, by you got mid-third century now, we are pretty much now baptizing babies. Now, the word Catholic means universal, okay, the Roman universal Catholic church. They're baptizing babies. In fact, they made it called a ritual of regeneration. They actually made it a sacrament. And the idea is that if you were baptized, you actually received salvation, okay? That, this original sin, your sin completely wiped off the table. You're a Christian because you're baptized. And so that is the practice. In fact, that is the practice of Catholicism even today. And if you hadn't baptized your baby prior to them dying, and there was a very high infant mortality rate, they actually created a place called the limbo of the infants, okay? You weren't, you weren't in heaven, you weren't in hell, You just were in this limbo place. And the church still, the Roman Catholic Church, has not come out with an official doctrine about what's really happening with these infants. But the practice of baptism gets started with babies really about here. And it gets firmly entrenched. And it happened this way. You have all these parents and they have, there's a high infant mortality rate and they want to believe that their children are in heaven. They're most, for the most part, illiterate. The church, the hierarchy, actually is highly literate. And they're saying, well, okay. Well, we can solve this. We'll baptize them. That will make them Christians, and that gives you the assurance that they're in heaven. And that worked. It, had, it was also extremely powerful because now you have all of these people who are baptized as infants, and they identify with the Roman Catholic Church. They, they're a part of it. It is an institution, and it's got immense power, and you've been brought into it. And even today, you go to a Catholic funeral, they keep focusing on the reality that this person was baptized, and hence they are saved, they've received salvation, they're forgiven of all their sins, and they're in heaven by virtue of something that happened when they were infants. Maybe even asleep until the water hit them, but that is the practice, and that is what is believed. Now, uh, how could the Catholics come up with this? Because that's not in the Bible. That's because Catholicism has two sources of authority. It has, on one hand, the Bible. On the other hand, an equal authority they have is called tradition, which they call the magisterium. And they hold two to be of equal value, and tradition supports baptizing infants, and hence it's perpetuated even to this very day. Now let's skip ahead here. We're going to skip a lot of church history. We're going to move all the way up to the Reformation period. There is a Roman Catholic scholar by the name of Martin Luther. And he's studying the Bible. And it took him many years to actually get to the Bible. But he starts studying and he's, he's got all these qualms with the Catholic Church. He himself is a Catholic priest. In fact, he's a doctor of theology, perhaps one of Rome's sharpest scholars. And in 1517, he nailed these 95 theses on the door of Wittenberg, Germany. And this was how you actually said, I want to debate these things and talk about them. So he nails them down on this, on this door, and he's got all these issues like, first of all, we cannot be telling people you give the Catholic Church a bunch of money, buy something called an indulgence, and you can spring their relative or even their own future souls out of hell. That doesn't work. That's not in the Bible. That's all made up. Yes, it's funding all our cathedrals, but wrong, it's not in the Scripture. And he takes this up, and his further study leads him to understand that it is justification by faith. And so... He's wrestling with these issues. To give you a quote from Martin Luther, he says, The church needs to rid itself of all false glories that torture Scripture, a good Martin Luther word, by inserting personal ideas into the Scripture which lend to it their own sense. No, he said, Scripture, 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 for me, constrain, press, compel me with God's word. That's what drives him. 
we got to base our beliefs on the Bible. But let's not think that one man is going to completely reform. That's what it is. Protestant, protesting, reformation, reform. He's going to get it all figured out in one lifetime. And sure enough, on this issue of baptism, Martin Luther continues the tradition that had been practiced by the church now hundreds of years of baptizing babies. In fact, in 1526, he creates this book called the Small Baptismal Book. And let me just give you a little bit of what takes place at baptism in his mind. He has, they have this prayer, and so you've got the parents and their baby, and they says this, quote, O Lord Almighty, I invoke thee concerning this child, thy servant, who asks for the gift of thy baptism and desires thy grace through the spiritual new birth. Okay, are you listening? And at the end of this, at the ceremony then, at Luther's ceremony, the infant is asked this, Doest thou renounce the devil and all his works in nature? He's asking the infant, and the parents answer, yes. Then it's asked, doest thou believe in God the Father and Jesus Christ, his Son, and the Holy Spirit, and in one Christian church? He's asking the infant. The parents answer, yes. And then they conclude with this. Luther writes, the Almighty God hath begotten thee anew through water and the Holy Spirit and has forgiven thee all thy sins. Amen. The baby is considered a Christian by virtue of baptism. Now, I want you to understand that Luther was trying to emphasize grace, that grace is the one, grace is the means by which these children enter into salvation. Uh, He was even asked, how in the world can you affirm if you believe in justification by faith alone, this this practice of baptizing babies? And he he answered this, well, somehow a baby must be able to believe because he knew that you had to believe. So somehow, he said, he's wrestling with it. You can see him wrestling. The baby believes. Modern day, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, this is what it says on their website. Baptism is God's act, a divine testimony to what grace alone really means. And that's what they want to emphasize, whereby he imparts the blessing of forgiveness, life, and salvation to individuals, children, and adults alike. Now, several years ago, I I was wrestling with this and wanting to really understand the Lutheran's position on this. And so I started entering into some email dialogue uh, with a man by the name of Dr. Paul J. Grime. And at that time, he was the executive director of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Commission on Worship. And we're discussing what Lutherans really believe about baptism. And so on an email, December 12, 2005, I, I sent him this, thanking him for all this information that he sent me, and I asked him this question. Is an infant who has been baptized in a Lutheran church then a Christian and saved from their sins, original and otherwise? And on the very same day, he gets back to me and he writes, Grant. An infant who is baptized is joined to Christ in his death and resurrection, Romans 6. He has been clothed with Christ, Galatians 3.27, whose righteousness covers all his sins. So, yes, that child is a Christian whose sins are forgiven, period. No conditions, period. Now, he would be the authority. He's been a prominent authority in the Lutheran church. That is what they believe. Now, he goes on to say that we desperately have to train these children up for them to realize the great salvation they have, and they want to emphasize grace. Then we also have other Reformed churches, okay, like Presbyterian churches. And they also adopt pedobaptism, the baptizing of infants. And now they vary it a little. 
Okay, and this is what they hold to, that they actually baptize an infant and they say that they are now a part, a little part of the covenant community. And what they've done is that they've said that baptism in the New Testament supplants circumcision in the Old Testament. The sign that a male would enter into the covenant community, circumcision, they said, well, now baptism actually supplants that. In the New Testament. And so we'll baptize babies. That kind of brings them into the covenant. And then they will have, just like the Lutherans believe, when they're older, around age 12, as they're moving into adulthood, we'll have, adulthood, we'll have something called confirmation where they'll confirm their faith that they had when they were an infant or at least was espoused for them by their parents. And so if they could say the catechism, it is believed that they are believers that are confirming their faith. And I'm doing this for you can see where baptism comes. Now, it's very interesting John Calvin, he is the kind of the head of the Presbyterian Church. In his significant magnum opus called the Institute of Christian Religion, on the fourth book, chapter 15, section 19, and John Calvin, for the most part, landed on infant baptism. And that is the practice in Presbyterian churches today. But let me take you back to the source. What did Calvin believe? And this is what he believed. He writes, quote, whether the person baptized is to be wholly immersed and that whether once or thrice or whether he is only to be sprinkled with poured water, he says these details are of no importance but ought to be optional to churches according to the diversity of countries or could be translated climates. He says, yet the word baptize, and I want you to listen to this, means to immerse. This is what Calvin is saying. And it is clear that the rite of immersion was observed in the ancient church. Calvin understood that this was the practice. And yet he understood that we're trying to reconcile history with what the scripture says, but he pretty much landed with infant baptism. Okay? Now, infant baptism is not in the scripture. Also, though, you have to say it's also true that scripture nowhere forbids infant baptism. It's just simply not in there. But there's a lot of things that scripture doesn't forbid, but infant baptism isn't forbidden. And then about the same time, in the 1500s, you have a group of people called the Anabaptists. That word Anna means again. And they're like, whoa, the Protestant Reformation, they're totally into this. It's right, it's faith in Christ alone. And they're like, wait a second, you believe and then you need to be baptized. That's why they're called Anabaptists. And you would think like, well, this should be well received because you've got a lot of scripture to back it up. And after all, the Reformation cry is what? Sola Scriptura. Not so much. So they started baptizing. They're again baptizing. They've been baptized as babies. They're baptizing themselves as adults because they have faith in Christ. And both the Roman Catholics and other Protestant churches that were into infant baptism, they not only not, do not take kindly to this, they decide these people need to die. Church history is oftentimes real brutal. And this is actually one of the saddest chapters. But we've got Protestants killing Protestants, joining in Catholics, and it is a mess. And it, I mean, if you want to get a glimpse of gore and of just completely missing the gospel, all you have to do is look especially at this season of church history. And then, you know, what happened? You got Roman Catholic countries, Protestant countries, and the Protestant countries actually became pretty much like the Roman Catholic countries. Power in in a religious name. And then, of course, today, well, you you can define baptism any way you want. There is, uh, in today's society, people want to get their babies baptized. But you can make it mean whatever you want. And there's other developments that have taken place. Like, for instance, uh, Salvation Army, Quakers, they call themselves Friends Church, uh, ultra-dispensationalists. 
they believe that baptism has absolutely of no importance whatsoever. Okay? It doesn't, doesn't matter. It's not, not relevant. On the other hand, you have like the churches of Christ. Okay? This would be like um, the churches of Christ and disciples of Christ. They believe in something called baptismal regeneration. They believe that unless you are baptized, you go to hell. It, just to profess that you believe, if you're not baptized, that's it. You must be baptized. And they, they have a super high degree of association. In fact, they're synonymous. And so, I mean, there's all these views. And then, wow, to add complexity to it, when you look outside Orthodox Christianity, you have a massive cult called Mormonism. It starts in the 1820s. And they believe in proxy baptism. And they are baptizing people that are dead. They are ba- have someone baptized in the place of someone that's dead. And there are 3 million plus people a year that the Mormon church baptized, has people baptized for. That is why they, are, they strongly emphasize genealogical records. They're trying to trace all these people, and then they have people that go to the temples, Mormons, and they're baptized in their place. They're thinking they're doing a favor because it'll enter them at least into the, the third level of heaven. So it is safe to say that we have millions of unbelievers worldwide that are baptized, and we also have millions of believers who have never been baptized and frankly aren't too bothered by the whole situation. So what do we do? What is the emphasis of the New Testament? And you'll find in your notes there that I have given you all the different scriptures in the book of Acts. How did the early church practice baptism? I'm not going to go through all of those. You certainly can. But in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the first message. And they're saying, whoa, we crucified the Lord. What do we do? And he says, repent and be baptized. And guess what? 3,000 people were baptized. Acts chapter 8, you've got Philip. He's going to bring the gospel to Samaria, a little bit north of Jerusalem. When they believe, what, what happens? They're baptized. A beautiful picture of that, Acts chapter 8, 26 through 40. You've got a guy by the call, the Ethiopian eunuch. He's making his way. Philip catches up with him as he's making his way back to Ethiopia. And this is a good picture of what the baptism looked like. As they're on the road, they came to some water. Philip has been explaining to this Ethiopian guy what, what real relationship with Christ looks like. And he says, The eunuch says, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, well, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Identification. And so right then, he ordered the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized them. And when they came up, they came up out of the water. Paul, Saul, the great persecutor of the Christian church, when God gets his attention, what does he do when he realizes that Jesus is the Lord? Even before he eats, and he hadn't been eaten in a while, he is baptized. Cornelius, Roman centurion, Acts chapter 10, he packs it out with his friends and relatives. Peter goes and proclaims the gospel, and you know what? When they believed, after they believed, they are baptized. Acts 16, Philippian jailer, remember he believes, he cleans up the wounds of Paul and Silas. And they are baptized. Everyone who believes in his household are baptized. Acts 18, verse 8, you got a guy by the name of Crispus. you got all these uh, Corinthians. They believe. They are baptized. And then Acts chapter 19, you guys you found this group of people that were baptized into John's baptism but never been actually become believers in Christ. Once they believe, they are baptized. So how important is baptism? How important is it? Can we treat it like jello salad at the buffet that we're going to go to in about 20 minutes. Like, eh, take it or leave it. Can you? A lot of folks do. Be careful before you answer that question. 
Jesus says, Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority has been given to me. I'm the authority. This is the blueprint. This is how it is to be done. Now, baptism may cost you. In the United States, it's not going to cost you much. But our friends in India with our ministry there, those guys that get baptized and those women, it's going to cost them. They'll be ostracized, many of them, from their villages. Muslims, if you come out of a Muslim faith and you get baptized in the name of Jesus and the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, watch out. Your days are numbered. You're, you're not only going to face ostracism, you're going to be disowned. And yet, this is the plan. Now, I know there's a lot of different opinions on this and a lot of trees have fallen. But friends, we must recover the mission of Jesus of making disciples. And his plan is that we are to be going and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know what? I don't want you to take my word for it at all. I don't. You examine the scriptures. Romans 4.3, what does the scripture say? I would never intentionally mislead you, but I want your beliefs based upon the Bible, and they must. Because recovering Christ's disciple-making mission requires that we are responsive to his words, that we are grounded in the reality that Jesus is Lord and our identity is in him, and baptism is a picture of that. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing charge you have given us. And sometimes even going through it, it seems like we've completely forgotten it. And yet this is the work you've entrusted to us. So Lord, bring clarity to our heart and to our thinking. If there's people here who have never placed their faith in Christ, would they simply trust in him now? And if there's those who have been, who are here who have never been baptized but do believe, would they talk with me or one of the other pastors or elders? I call the church office and let's address this critical issue according to Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.